So uh, if you were around on Thursday night in the call, you would have heard the story. But, um, you know, normally when you apply for citizenship, one of the, the sort of second last part of the citizenship process is you go for your interview and they quiz you about American civics and they check your application and whatever. And then they tell you either yes or no. And then you have to go away and wait for sometimes one to four months actually for your like oath-taking ceremony and it's usually the big affair in the courthouse and you get your picture in front of the flag and all of those fun things. Well, one of the perks of COVID that I found out was that they're not doing those ceremonies and so they did it at the end of the interview. So I went in thinking I was just doing the interview and that at some point in the future I'd get to be a citizen and I left with my citizenship. So that was not what I was expecting, but at least there's some benefits to COVID right now. So... <laughs> But, but it, also means, it also means I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it because I think you do the interview, they tell you you're going to have your citizenship ceremony. You've got like a month to kind of prepare for this big formal like pomp and circumstance event. And instead it was just me and a dude in an office saying the things and then I left with my certificate. So I'm, I'm a little bit still wrapping my head around it. So the first service, I, I said something about, you know, you guys have an election coming up and I got corrected afterwards that I was supposed to say, we have an election coming up. So you're going to notice it's going to take me a little bit of time to wrap my head around the fact that I'm a US citizen. So, but that's exciting. So you don't get rid of me yet. Uh, at least you can kick me out of the church, but you can't kick me out of the country. So there we go. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so this morning we are going to launch into uh, a new series um, where we're going to focus on prayer. So as I looked at all the documentation that was sent to me as we talked through the candidacy process, one of the values that kept coming up was this value of intentional prayer. And I know through what you did with Vital Church um, and through the church-wide summits, intentional prayer was something that came to the fore. Um, And so I don't want to make any assumptions about how effective we are at prayer, how equipped in that we are, how well we feel we can do it. So I want to take some time here at the beginning to look at just what are we supposed to be praying? What's it look like to pray? And how do we become a more intentional church? So, so with that, I'm going to put up some aims that I have for this series. Why are we going to do this series, Praying with Paul? So here's some of the things that I'm hoping we're going to get as we spend the next couple of months looking at Praying with Paul. So first of all, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll know better how to pray for the church. So I think we've all got things we're praying for the church. The question is, are we praying the right things for the church? And so we're going to look at some of these uh, New Testament prayers and what Paul prays for the church to become uh, and allow that to inform how we pray for us as Alliance Bible Church, but also how we pray for the church in our city and what it's supposed to look like. Secondly, um, it's to understand who we're supposed to be as the church. So as Paul is sharing and Uh, his theology as he's praying for these churches in those prayers is a vision for how God intends the church to be. So as we look at these prayers over the coming weeks, this is an opportunity for us to to re-look at who are we supposed to be as a church and who are we supposed to be as the larger church. Um, I want to take time to practice praying scripture over the church. So I know some people in here are really well versed at praying scripture, um, but we're going to practice this. So we're going to be taking these scriptures and praying them for ourselves, for this church, for the church in the Portland metro area, for the church in the world. And we're going to practice what it looks like to pray these words over ourselves. Four, that we get to partner with God in the transformation of the church. So I think we, I'll, I'll say this many, many times, prayer is probably the most underappreciated gift that we have as Christians. And, and just as a side note, you know, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it says, when God created, God spoke, let there be light, and all of a sudden light exists. So everything that we have in existence is the result of God speaking. speaking. 
and, and his power comes with his words. And so what happens is God made us in his image, and one of the ways that we reflect the image of God is he's endowed our words with power. So when we speak, actually Proverbs says, with your words you have the power to bring life or death. So with our words, we have the ability to change the situation in front of us. And even more so, with our words as Christians, we have the ability to call down the power of God from on high to bear on the earth. So as we're looking at this series, we're also partnering with God and what he wants to do to transform the world around about us. Um, number five, prepare for God to move through our church. You know, prayer and and. Uh, movements of prayer always precede the outpouring of God's Spirit, always precede the movement of God in an area. So part of this is if we're praying the right things for our church, if we're getting our hearts in the right posture, if we're out there doing the right things that God asks us to do, then we're hoping this church is going to grow. We're hoping we are going to grow deeper. We're hoping that our church is going to broaden as we reach more people in our community. Now, being postured in intentional prayer is how we best prepare to meet the needs of the people that are going to walk in this door. So this is partly about us being prepared for what God wants to do as he moves in and through us. And then the last one is is an invitation that each week as we look at one of these prayers, I want you to take time to evaluate your own heart and life. And I've put it down here as your contribution to the church. So Paul is praying specific things over the church. And so the question will be, as you look at your heart, as you look at your life, are you aiding or hindering what Paul wanted the church to become? And that's, as you look here at Alliance Bible Church, is, is what you're doing contributing to God's vision or you stand in the way of it? And then as we look at the church in the wider world, is our action and attitude contributing to the work of his kingdom or are the things that we're doing that stand in the way of that? And, and just to give the game away, we do a lot to stand in the way of that. If you're here and you're perfect, then great. You will do everything in line with the kingdom. If you're here and you're a sinner like me, then there are things in our hearts that stand in the way of God's desire for our church. And so then it's going to be a discussion about how do we change that individually as a church? What are the resources, the disciplines, the people that we need? And what encounters with God do we need to experience in order to change that? So this is, this is the goal in this as we explore and examine prayer together. Um, each week there's going to be homework we're going back to school. Are you excited? Not, not crazy homework, but here's three things. There will be other things that come up, but here's three things that I really hope that we can do through this series. So each week we're going to be talking about prayer and looking at one of Paul's prayers. So I want to take time at the end of each service to stop together and actually pray these words over our church. It's the best way we can apply what we're going to be looking at together. Um, number two is, is an invitation. I really want to invite you to take the prayer that we look at this week and spend the week praying it for yourself, for your family, for this church, and for the world around about us. Um, so an invitation to partner together as we pray God's will over this church. And then, as I already said, this last one is, is commit some time this week. It could be threaded through the week. It could be that you're setting aside 10, 15, 20 minutes to sit down and actually look at the scripture and examine your heart. You know, Psalm 139, search my heart, O God. Search me and know me. See if there's any impurity in me. And so we want to have that posture as we engage these topics. And hopefully through that, we'll put ourselves in the right posture for God to transform us so that we're better able and better postured to carry his work forward into the world. So 
we're going to look at specifically at Paul's prayers. You know, the whole Bible from beginning to end is basically a giant prayer book. And so we could pick anything to look at how do we pray. We could look at prophets and the things that they're praying. We could just spend the whole time preaching one a week through the 150 Psalms and take the next three years to do that. Um, There's lots of content. We could spend our time looking at Jesus, his prayer life, the prayers that he uttered. Um, And and so there's lots that we could choose, but I'm choosing to, to look at the prayers of Paul for a very specific purpose because Paul is very unique in God's plan. So Paul is the one, Jesus comes and he's working in Jerusalem and they're establishing the beginning of the church in Israel, a Jewish nation. They're building on the heritage that they have. But as God is trying to expand the gospel outside of the Jewish dominated culture, he uses Paul as his primary instrument. So Paul is this expert at taking the gospel to places where, where God's way is not the predominant way. And so Paul takes the gospel to cultures a lot like the one that we live in, where there may be elements of Christianity present. There may be elements in in Paul's day of of the Judaism present in the society, but it's a different society with different rulers, different expectations. And, And Ephesians makes it really clear, you know, Paul was given this revelation of this mystery, and he was given a unique role to to unfold the mystery of what the church was supposed to be. And so as we look at Paul's words, this is, you're seeing his heart as he prays for the church, but you're also getting an insight into this vision that God birthed in him and through him for what the church was supposed to be. So this is our opportunity to recenter who are we as the church and what does God want to do here? And Paul becomes a really great lens for that. Before we look at the the passage that we're going to look at today, I want to throw up some scriptures that New Testament scriptures that just remind us of the calling as the church to pray. Um, And so again, there's lots of stuff all the way through scripture that makes it clear that God's people are to be a praying people. But in the New Testament, there are some very specific commands that put prayer right as a central focus of what we're supposed to do. So if you start in Luke 18.1, Jesus is, is sharing a parable. And at the end, Luke says that Jesus told his disciples this parable to show them that they should pray and never give up. Um, so, so Jesus cared about us having a posture of persistent prayer that we would never give up in the things that we're calling God to do in the world. Um, Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Um, and so this call to faithful prayer, and, and kind of the same as the Luke 18 passage, there's perseverance required because it's going to be hard. Joyful in hope, patient in afflictions. And, and in the midst of those afflictions, we need to persevere as we're faithful in prayer. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's outlining this, this spiritual warfare chapter and the armor that God has given us to withstand the attacks of the enemy. But he gives us two offensive weapons. He gives us the the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he tells us to pray in the Spirit at all times. So this is one of the offensive weapons we have in the spiritual war that we live in the midst of. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So this is not just we're we're asking God to do stuff. This is not just that we're, we're trying to establish God's kingdom here. This is also that we're standing against the work of the evil one as he's trying to corrupt the 
culture around us and corrupt the church in the midst of it. And Philippians 4, 6, people know this one fairly well. In every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then the peace that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So this call to experience this transcendent peace, where, how do we get there? Prayer, petition, and thanksgiving as we present all of these requests to God. Um, Colossians 4.2, perhaps the most succinct of them all. Um, Devote yourselves to prayer. So he's writing to this church that is in this society with all of these competing ideologies and, and Paul's command, devote yourselves to prayer. As a church, this is our calling. This is our calling as Christians to be people who are devoted to this prayer relationship with God. And then the last one, 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if you're in a situation where you're looking at your life and saying, what's God's will for my life? Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. And I know lots of people in here, you're, you, there's transitions going on in people's lives. Your life isn't quite how you envisioned it right now. Well, this is God's will for you. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is his will for us. So all of these things together are saying the command, the vision, the instruction for the church is that we should be a community that's marked by prayer. Um, And so you hired me on. I'm sorry, you're gonna hear this a lot from me. We're gonna be a church devoted to prayer. That's, that's, yeah, good. Um, you have this value that you want to step into intentional prayer. So we're going to work on this. We're going to learn this. We're going to practice it. There's things that I'll be able to teach you. There's a lot that you're going to be able to teach me. And, and there are elements of this intentional prayer process of being devoted to prayer. There's elements of this that are individual. What does your prayer life look like as you sit alone with the Lord? But actually, the bigger part of this is what does the church look like as we gather together in prayer? Um, and so we need to learn new and, and inventive ways to engage in corporate intercession so that God can do through us the things that he wants to do. So with all of that introduction, we're going to jump into the passage for today. So we're, we're working through some key prayers that are in Paul's letters. And when we do that, there's, there's several approaches that you could take to this. Lots of people just passes up as you're reading through the Bible. A lot of times we don't realize that the, the New Testament letters are not in chronological order. Lots of people think that's the case. But actually, the, the New Testament letters are written by order of length. Um, they're organized by order of length in the Greek. So really interesting random fact. So one way, one way that we could do this is we take them chronologically as Paul's revealing different things to the different churches. So we could tackle his letters in order, then you'll never know what's coming next, um, which can be good because then I can change up the order. <laughs> the, the, the other one is we could organize them based on some kind of nice flow so that all the topics fit together. Um, and, and that can be nice. It can build on each other really well. But I, I, I felt like the best way we could do this, and partly because I'm hoping it stirs a little curiosity, we're just going to tackle them in the order that they appear. Um, so there's no fancy strategy here. Other than, you know I'm in Romans this week, so you get to go home and try and figure out where we are next week. Um, and so if you're curious to anticipate where we're going, you can go read and try and figure out what the next prayer is that we might tackle. So just to, that, that'll help you know where we're going. We're going to just tackle them in order. So let's begin with this prayer as, as uh, Paul is praying at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Let's see 
the, the heart and the vision he has for the church and how that intersects with how we're supposed to be as Alliance Bible Church. So this is Romans 15, verses 5 and 6 and 13. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you just take a minute to look at that verse, you'll notice just simple observation. There's two requests that he'd give us um, the same attitude towards each other and that he'd fill us with joy and peace. And then there's two results. Uh, with the so that clauses, so that we would glorify God, so that we would overflow with hope. So there's two elements here that we're going to look at and, and explore them together. So the first one, this is not rocket science, okay? You should all be able to anticipate where we're going with, with, with these points. So the first thing, as Paul is writing to the Roman church and telling them what to pray for, it's that we pray that we would be united. So as you're praying for, for Alliance Bible Church, pray that we would be united. Um, and there's, there's lots of ways we could write this. We could say pray for unity. We could say pray, pray to be united. We could say that we're pray. Some Bible translations actually talk about that we would live in harmony with one another. Um, and elements of all of those are true. But this is being united. It's having one mind, one thought, one action. This is not us sitting happy, clappy in a room together being friends. This is a, a unity of vision, a unity of love for Jesus, and a unity of commitment to the mission that he's taken us out to do. Um, and, and so this is us standing together in, in everything that we're doing. Now, why is Paul writing this to the Roman church? So remember, the Roman church is this church that Paul hasn't visited. So he's writing to a church that he didn't plant and that he hasn't visited yet. He longs to go see them. And this is a church where you've got some Jewish people living in Rome and you've got a bunch of Roman Gentiles that are coming to faith in Jesus. So you've got these two disparate groups of people that are living together in Rome trying to figure out how they live out their faith. And so what does this look like? It, the, the context right before this, if, if you want to read some crazy things that, that are really applicable to the season we're living in, Romans 13, 14, 15, as, as Paul is trying to explain to these people how these two disparate groups are supposed to live together. And so what do you have going on in the context? You've got a, a group of Jewish people who are used to living under Torah, where there's all these rules about what you are and aren't allowed to eat. They're very sensitive to the fact that they're living in a culture where a lot of the meat, when it's it's produced, is sacrificed, and dedicated to some idol. And so they're going, we can't eat this meat because it's been dedicated to an idol. And so if we eat it, we're participating in idolatry. And so we need to stay pure. We need to eat just vegetables. Yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> I ain't no vegetarian. I'll work on that. Um, so, so you've got one group of people saying the best way that we can honor God in this culture is let's abstain from the meat because we're going to honor God best by staying away from idolatry. You've got another group of people saying, well, God made everything clean. It's not about what we eat. It's about what's going on inside of us. So it doesn't matter. God had, God defeated those idols. He's over them. So it doesn't matter. So we can eat the meat. So we cannot eat the meat 
and we're honoring God, or we can eat the meat and we're honoring God, and both people are fighting about this. Just like we can wear a mask and honor God, we cannot wear a mask and we can honor God, and we can fight about it. It's a similar situation where they're looking at the culture round about them, and they're trying to say, what's my relationship to the government, to the culture round about, and what's the best way to live out our faith? And you have these two groups of people who are, they're both settling on different sides of the spectrum. You've also got the situation where some of them, again, they're Jewish, and they come from a Jewish heritage and Sabbath is so important and and Israel all revolved around the Sabbath and keeping it holy and so you get these people that want to keep the Sabbath holy and you've got these Gentile people who have never heard of the Sabbath they've never lived with the Sabbath they're used to their culture and they're going what's the best way to honor God do you try and implement a Sabbath in a culture that doesn't honor it do you implement the Sabbath and try and honor God best that way and they're arguing and they're fighting and they're struggling with what the best way is to live out their faith. Um, that's just the two illustrations that Paul addresses in the immediate context but there are lots of other issues that they're wrestling with. How do we as a group of people with different backgrounds, different upbringings live together under God, under a government that's making decisions and a culture that values things that are not what we value? And, and so Paul in this context says, may the God, may God who gives endurance and encouragement give you this one attitude, the same attitude that Christ had toward one another. May you be united. So this prayer for unity is that we would be united under him. Now it's important, you, you've heard this before, um, unity does not mean uniformity. So what he's not saying is everybody needs to believe the same thing. Your theology all needs to line up exactly the same. Everyone needs to vote for the same political candidate. Everybody needs to serve in the same ministries. It's not uniformity. It's, it's understanding that these disparate groups of people need to come together in Christ. Let me put it this way. Your affection for Jesus your love for him, your devotion to him should supersede all the other things that you care about. When we come together to worship, I don't know if you've had the the moments that I do when I worship, and you can be in a room full of people and you're worshiping and all of a sudden you kind of forget that there's anyone else in the room and it's just you and God and you're just worshiping. And you might know that there's other people around about, you might hear their voices, but you're just lost with him. That's what it's supposed to be like as we gather doesn't matter who you voted for, doesn't matter what you're wrestling with, doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. When we come together, we're supposed to be united in our affection for him in a way that supersedes everything else and smooths over all the other things. As I look at at the words in in this first part of the prayer, and if you're anything like me, I I read a word and it just kind of sparks some other thoughts. So as I read this, you know, may he give you the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. Can you think of somewhere else where that's like the big key statement? As as soon as I read it, my mind went straight to Philippians 2. Um, So let's throw this up there. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what was that mindset that it goes on to say? that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he he made himself nothing and he took on human form and then he became a servant and then he sacrificed himself on the cross that we would have the intimacy with God that we were designed to have. Um, And so 
That whole passage is about Jesus in his self-sacrificing posture, not considering other people better than themselves, not living to please self, but living and putting the wants and needs and desires of other people above himself. Um, If you look at the context here, Romans 15, right before the prayer, it's the similar sentiment. He's describing that the strong people are the ones that feel uh, their conscience is strong. So they feel freedom to eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. They feel freedom to not have to observe the Sabbath. The weak, the people whose conscience was weak, we can get into some stuff about those words, but we won't right now. Um, But they were people who felt a stronger conviction that that they needed to abstain and withhold from the things that were going on. So you've got these two groups of people, both loving Jesus, both trying to figure it out, but with different views of how they live out their faith. So he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So what was the attitude that Jesus had? It was an attitude that wasn't self-pleasing. It was self-sacrificing for the benefit of other people. He, um, those who are strong should bear with the failings of the weak and not work to please ourselves. This is really hard, especially in our culture. We don't like limitations on our freedom. I mean, we fought for freedom. People lose their lives for freedom here. And people have made some great sacrifices for this country. We love being here in the U.S. because of the freedoms that it affords. But as soon as we give our life to Jesus, we lose certain freedoms. Because now we're slaves to Christ and his way is the way that's supposed to dominate our life. His values are supposed to be the guardrails that dictate our life. And one of these, as Paul is saying here, is when it comes to love within the church, if your heart gives you freedom, don't let your freedom be a stumbling block to someone else's intimacy with Jesus. And Paul actually says, the ones who feel the strongest level of freedom as it relates to how we engage the culture, we're the ones that need to limit our freedom to love well the other people in the church. Now, this is not, let me get this is not just preferences. This is not like, I've got to give up my preferences so that you can have your preferences. This is, I've got to be willing to lay aside the freedom that I feel to engage my spirituality in a particular way so that I don't become a stumbling block to your faith. This is not preferences. This is the way that we live our faith and the values that we hold to becoming a stumbling block to someone else's ability to engage Jesus and embrace the gospel. So in those situations, I had a a Bible teacher that that when he, he, he wrote a book on the strong and the weak brothers in Romans, but he would always say, it's the job of the strong to lovingly limit your liberty. That's our job. So where you feel the greatest freedom We've got to be sensitive to the people around about us. We've got to honor them, consider them better than ourselves, be willing to give up our way. And you know, we're in a a time and an era where people just love to speak their mind. And uh, you know, I've earned the right. I can just say what I want to say. But that's not the the attitude and the, the posture of Christ. The attitude and posture of Christ was to always consider God first, consider the other people around about you, and then from that place to use your words or your actions in a way that glorifies him, not elevates yourself. Um, And so when Paul is saying, we have to pray, pray that we would be united. It's more than just sitting together in agreement. Um, But this is us, people of all different walks of life, all different 
political ideologies, all different spectrums, all different nationalities, all different socioeconomic situations, all different messes of identity, all coming together, subordinating all of that under Christ and standing united in our devotion for him and our commitment to his kingdom. When it comes to this unity, (laughs) I don't know if there's anything in scripture that requires more miraculous intervention from God. I think it's easier to walk up to someone and pray that they pick up your mat and walk than it is to say, you guys who don't see things the same way, be in unity. (laughs) I think it's it's the hardest thing to, to live in unity with people that don't see things the same way that we do. But here's the issue. The church is supposed to lead the way in this process. When it comes to living in unity, the world should be able to look at the church and see us, and and we should be the example to the world of how this is supposed to be. So the words of God up here, when it comes to reconciliation, the church should lead the way. You know, the gospel, the, the gospel that we live, when I read it, um, you read things like Ephesians chapter 2, that God broke down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and made the one body in Christ. You have these verses like in Galatians that there's now no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but unity under Christ in the body. And this is the problem. If you look at the world round about us and you look at this very charged season that we're in, you look at the media and you look at the world, people of opposing viewpoints don't even want to be, they don't want to be friends on Facebook, let alone in real life. Um, they, they don't want to sit in the same room together. The, the news outlets that are just hurling insults at each other. Um, and and you, you just look at it and you go, it's just division and it's hostility. And it, it's painful to watch. Um, but here's the sad thing. It's not much different in the church. It's not much different in the church. We have the same infighting. We have the same name-calling. Whether it's political views, whether it's theological ideologies, we are quick to hurl insults at each other. Um, Within our church bodies, we have issues with each other. We don't view politically the same way. We don't view ministry the same way. We have different ideas of leadership and how things should be run. And all of a sudden, it's just division and hostility when God wants unity. And so we're in this situation that when, when the world is dealing with the inability to reconcile two disparate viewpoints and bring them together, like they should be able to look at the church and see an example of what it looks like to take people from all different walks of life and see them live harmoniously under Jesus. But here's the deal. When you take your political views when you take your values, when you take your upbringing, when you take your culture and you add on top of it, God says, the church is actually worse at this than the world is. We're more dogmatic about what's right and wrong. We're more dogmatic that the people out there don't have it right and it's our job to fix it. And so actually, when the world round about us is looking for examples of reconciliation, when they're looking for how do you live in harmony, the last place they look is the church. And so they're seeking secular psychologists and business leaders and Oprah Winfrey and and Ellen DeGeneres for examples of what it looks like to honor people and celebrate people and live in harmony with one another instead of the church. 
So when Paul says that we have to pray for unity, it's that we would lead the way in the world of showing what it looks like for Jesus and his blood to wash over us, to make us whole, to overcome all of the obstacles and bring us together in such a miraculous way that as we're out there operating in the world and they're like, man, you're a Democrat and you're a Republican and you're on the same mission. You own a house and you're a transient person and you're worshiping God together. You're from this country over here that seems to really hate God and we're from the land of the free and you worship together. They're going, what does that? What brings all of those people together? What causes that to be possible? And it turns their attention towards what the gospel is and what it does. Um, so we're to pray that we be united. I've, I've outlined up here, may God, uh, who gives endurance and encouragement, see those words? It's not going to be easy. <laughs> this is not Jesus comes and all of a sudden, kumbaya. This is a hard and painful process of joining together and subordinating all our stuff to Christ. So we need the God who gives endurance the ability to, to last through the hard things and encouragement, the ability to be built up uh, in the things that we're valuing. We need that God to give us that ability in order for this to be possible. So we're fully dependent on him, on in his empowerment if we want to live in unity. So what does it require? It requires, first of all, our deep devotion for Jesus, so much so that everything else is willing to be pushed to the side. Um, so that our eyes are fixed on him and that becomes the primary focus. And then it takes the work of the Spirit as he empowers us to overcome our selfishness, to overcome our preference, to die to self, to consider others better than ourselves, and then to come together as we work on what it is that Jesus wants us to do. In this prayer, he also gives us the purpose so we have to be united. But why? United so that God is glorified. He says, so that with one mind and one voice you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, as we do this, as we love Jesus together, as we fix our eyes on him together, as we absorb his vision together, and as we move out together, God gets the most glory. So what here, if we're looking at just this passage, what's the thing that is most likely to rob God of glory? Us. And our selfishness get in the way of the unity that he's designed for the church. Um, So your sin, my sin, our sin is the thing that is most going to rob God of the unity that he wants and the glory that he deserves. Um, And so part of this is not just sitting together and liking one another. It's not even just getting out there and doing the work that God wants us to do. This is the name of God being exalted as his people live together in harmony and in unity and as we act with one mind, with one accord. The language here of, uh, you know, one mind, one voice, this language that they use, um, this is the only time. It's, it's used several times in Scripture. It's primarily used in Acts. This is the one time outside of Acts they use this, the word that means one mind. And every other time, it's, a peop, it's, it's Acts describing a people group acting as one. So it's things like all the believers were gathered together in prayer. And they use this word that means one mind. You've got um, all of the believers out there serving in some capacity. They're taking the gospel out as one mind. You've got other verses that talk more like the whole city was stirred up against them and they persecuted them. 
And so this is like collective unanimity of purpose that moves us out together in, in a collaborative action. Um, and so when he's saying this, this is not just, again, not us sitting together. This is us absorbing vision together. This is us praising God together. This is us loving one another well. This is us going out into the community and every step of the way we act as one. One man, one accord, one voice, and God is glorified. Why is this important? Well, there's lots of implications for the current season we're in because we live in potentially the most politically and conflict-charged season that we're in with COVID, with mask wearing, with people's perspectives on vaccinations as it moves forward. We've got we have this election coming up uh, and, and it's, you've got Christians who love Jesus, who are committed to his word, who, who will say that if you're a Christian, you have to vote Trump because that is what the Bible teaches. On the other side, you have Christians who love the Lord, who honor his word, who value immensely, who are saying, if you love the Lord, you will vote for Joe Biden. And the two groups of people that love the Lord, that are wrestling with Scripture, trying to understand the character of God and his mission, and then walking out in the world trying to figure out how that fits politically. Um, you've, you've got right now the, the issue with, um, with the, new, the Supreme Court justice passing away and the work that she's done, and now this other big debate about what does this look like? Do they, do they fill the slot now? Do they wait to after the election? What happened the last time? What's the right thing to do this time? What responsibility does the president have, and what's the best way to honor the vote? And you've got Christians all, on all sides of the spectrum and all along the middle trying to wrestle honestly with what God wants them to do to live out their faith the best. And it's so easy for us to hear someone whose viewpoint is opposite to us and rather than honor them and consider them better than ourselves we say what do they know they don't like the bible they've thrown the bible out um, or we say they don't uh, they don't care about people they don't care about justice they don't care about social issues they just care about dogma and 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 we start hurling names and that's not the way jesus wants it to be he said when he prayed in john 17 that we would be one just as Father, Son, and Spirit were one, different, th the three different members of the Godhead, different people, different roles, different responsibilities, working in perfect unity with no division, each one honoring the other over themselves. And this overflow and dance of love is what we're called to represent as the church. Um, and so as I said, you know, this is a, it's a call for self-evaluation. As you look at your life, as you look at the things that you talk about, as you look at people who are believers who believe differently to you, do, is your posture toward them honor? Is your posture towards them self-sacrifice? Is it honoring them and considering them better than self? Or do you put them down? Is your posture when you speak, you think of God, you honor the people round about, and then from that lens, you choose whether to speak or not, or do you just say what you want without regard for the people in the room, what they might think and where they might feel? As you're sitting in a room and someone is saying something that you disagree with, do you honor what they're saying and do you receive it with love and grace toward them? Or do you judge and distance? Because God is telling us through the words of Paul and through his prayer that we're to pray that we're to be united and that as we walk in this unity, he gets glory. And so, you know, we're in this season as a church. It's a new season. What is the vision for this church moving forward? So we have this amazing opportunity. You've done part of it already, but we get to sit together, to pursue Jesus together, to discern together God's vision for this body of people, God's heart for this community, and what our role is to go out there into the community and play a part in it. 
And so we want to pray that we're united in the vision, that God reveals to us this vision together, that we form it together. But here's the deal. Every single one of you has an idea of what that's supposed to be. You all have preferences around what evangelism looks like, what serving the community looks like, what your role is in that process, whether you get to have a leadership role or be on the side, help and support. We all have ideas of what the vision is and what our role is in it. But we're supposed to be united in that vision. And what that means is we fix our eyes on Jesus, we discern his will, and we lay all our preferences to the side. And as we discern together what God's goal and purpose is for this church, that we come together with one mind and with one voice and we embrace it together and we move out into the world together, knowing that as we do that, God is glorified and the world around us is transformed. So number one, pray that we would be united. Is that a good first point? On to point number two. (laughs) The second part of this is, is to pray that we would be full of joy and peace and hope. So there's lots of things that we could choose to mark our community, to mark our lives as Christians. But in this instance, Paul is saying in a politically charged season where you've got different people trying to come together and figure out how to honor God together, pray that you would be marked by joy and by peace and by hope. So what's joy? Joy is not the fuzzy feeling of being happy and bubbly and optimistic all the time. Joy is that sense of gladness that you have even when it feels like the world has fallen apart around about us. Joy is rooted in the confidence that we have that God is in control and that it doesn't matter what happens around about us, that we know how the story ends and we know that in every hard thing that happens, he's working for our good and our transformation and the benefit of his name and the world around about us. We're to be filled with peace. What's peace? I just, I wish that they would just translate the word shalom all the way through the Bible and not switch to the Greek in the New Testament. I want the word, this is, this is not that nice feeling that you have when you have inner calm. This is not going off and sitting by a river, sitting in a fishing boat and just relaxing. This is not that feeling of going to a therapist and having them put your inner world in order. This is not meditation um, and just getting to that sense of inner peace. This is shalom. What's shalom? Shalom is the world and the created order being as God intended it to be. So when you're living in shalom, it means that your relationship with God, your relationship with others, and your relationship with the creation are exactly as God intended them to be. When we pray shalom over someone, you're saying, I wish all of your life would be in harmony with God, with others in creation, so that God's will is accomplished. Why is he saying they need to be full of peace? Because they're living in a season of conflict and discomfort. In that season when it's easy to be discouraged, where it's easy to be overwhelmed, where it's easy to feel that just constant anxiety inside, that instead of that, we would be a community that is known by their joy and known by their peace. And what would happen if you're out there living your life and the people round about are having a conversation in the coffee shop and it's heated and you hear people anxious and they look over and they see your joy and they see the sense of peace, they're gonna go, how in this season can you be so joy-filled? How in this season can you be so full of peace? How can you live in harmony with these people that view things so differently? And we say, well, it's, it's the hope that I have. I get to live with this hope. Yeah, here's a good question for you. <laughs> Again, self, self-reflection, self-evaluation. 
when you look at your life, if I was to go and ask people in your life, what are the key traits that describe you? If I was to ask Mike, what are the key traits that you would say that describe Kim or Dave, what are the key traits that describe Sarah? Uh, Sue, what are the key traits that describe Megan? If I was to go and ask people these questions, what are they going to say? Are they going to say your life is marked by joy and peace? Or are they going to say something else? They're grumpy. They're impatient. They're judgmental. They're gossipy. They're full of anxiety. They're fearful. Um, so again, this is an opportunity to examine yourself. If Paul's saying that we're not just to have joy and peace, but to be filled with joy and peace, are these true of your life? And if your life is not marked by joy and peace, what's gone wrong? Because the thing that robs us of joy and peace is when we're not living the way God intends us to live. So we have to look and say, what's the sin in my life that's robbing me of joy? What's the sin in my life that's robbing me of peace? What are the disciplines I need? What are the encounters with God I need? Who are the people I need around me to help me move from this place of anxiety, bitterness, fear, um, into a place that's full of joy and full of peace? And why does he want us to be full of joy and peace? So that we would overflow with hope. So that we would overflow with hope. You know, I said living in, in unity, living united in this, in, I guess in any part of history, because they're dealing with the same issues 2,000 years ago. Living in peace is hard and it requires miraculous intervention of God. When you can see two people in the church who see things differently coming together and being united in Jesus, it gives you hope for what can happen out there in the world. When you see people living in joy in the midst of hardship, it gives you hope that things are not gonna be the way they are right now. Hope comes out of these situations. You know, earlier in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 3, you know, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God's poured out his love into our hearts by the Spirit he's given us. And so this is all about all of this hardship, the peace, the reconciliation, the hope in the middle of it brings this confidence at what God is going to do in the future. And all of it, yeah, all of it is important because look at this. Our world needs hope. I look at the things on the news, the number of people that are committing suicide. I look at teen pregnancy rates. I look at the, the division that exists right now politically in the media, in our culture. You look at the fires. You look at um, people who are wrestling with identity issues, people who are lonely. Um, they're desperate for hope. Our world needs hope, and the church is supposed to be the agent that carries that hope to them. So when I think about our church and I dream about what I want to see in the church, I want to see this be a place where someone is homeless would come in here and leave with the hope that God has a plan for them and a future for them and they don't have to be stuck in the situation that they're in. I have a hope that people who are in struggling marriages would walk in the church and they would see the examples that are here of marriages that have lasted. They hear the truth of scripture that things can change and that they would leave with a renewed hope that their marriage doesn't have to be the way it is. I think of people whose identities are 
broken and confused. They feel lost. That they would walk in these doors. They would see our lives. They would see our example. They would hear the message of God's love and they would leave with hope. That they have a unique identity, a unique purpose in God's plan and they don't have to live and wrestle the way they do. I, I think of people who are lonely and isolated. That they would walk in these doors and find family and find community. Not just people that they can see on a Sunday, but people that will check in on them during the week. People that will be, come alongside them and support them. I imagine people who are hurting and ill and sick and broken walking in these doors and leaving healed and whole and renewed as agents that get to carry that into the world round about us. This is the hope that the world needs and God has given us the responsibility and the privilege of carrying that hope as a community to the people round about us. Again, individuals and community, we carry it individually, but then we carry this together as we walk out there as one. In this passage, the God of hope fill you with joy and peace. May he fill you with these things. You know, all the way through, it's about our oneness with Christ. It's about our belief in him. It's all built on our connection with him and the empowerment of the spirit that comes through him. It's not something we muster on our own. Praise the Lord, we don't have to figure this out just as ourselves, Alliance Bible Church. We're going to figure out harmony and joy and peace and unity all by ourselves. This is the transformative work of the Spirit as he's revealing, as he's empowering, as he's convicting, and as he's drawing us together in Jesus. So as I started, here's your homework for the week. <laughs> So we're going to take some time now as, as we end. I want to take time just to pray together as a community. So we'll, we'll, after this is done, we'll put the, the Paul's prayer up on the screen. And we're just going to take some time together to pray over our church. Um, I'd encourage you to take, whether you're carrying your Bible around, whether you're writing this passage out in a three-by-five card this week, put it somewhere where you see it, whether that's in the bathroom, whether it's in your car, um, whether it's inside your Bible, just somewhere that you see it. And, and, and every day this week, just pray these words that we would be united um, to God's glory and that we would be a church that's full of joy and peace and hope. Um, and then take some time this week, whether it's something that's threaded through your week as you just ruminate on the passage, or whether it's setting aside some time that you sit together um, with God uh, and, and you take 15, 20 minutes, and you just reflect, God, where is this true in my life? Where is my sin getting in the way of these things? Uh, and talk with God about that, and then we can have conversations in the future uh, about how we grow from there. Um, so that, that's what we're going to do. Um, so let's put the, the words of the prayer back up on the screen. And what I would like to do is just take some time now to pray. And so we'll just be quiet for, I don't know, 30 seconds or so and just listen and, and focus on the Lord, listen to what he might want to say. And then just as you feel ready, I just wanted to pray out loud and we'll just take some time and just pray these words over our church that this is the kind of community that we'd, we would be as we walk forward in this new season. So let's take some time to pray.